Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. You could open your Bibles at uh, page 1244. We're going to be looking at Revelation 15 and 16 this morning. My wife loves the book of Revelation. Um, She's not an an academic. She certainly wouldn't claim to understand it all. But she does say, I heard her again this week saying, I love Revelation. She is what is called an imaginative learner. Uh, She learns by observing and visualising. She doesn't know any of her pin numbers, but she knows the pattern that they make on the number pad. If uh, she wants to direct me to where somebody lives in Sheffield, almost certainly she won't know the number of the house, but she will know the colour of the curtains. Because that's the way in which she learns. She learns through patterns and through pictures. And that's very helpful as we come to the book of Revelation. John is sometimes called John the Seer. He's always seeing things. And if you look around at the headings of the paragraphs on your page, you'll see. John says, I saw, I was showed, I observed. He's all the time seeing things, visions, and picturing them. And it's very wonderful, I think, that the final, rather difficult book of the Bible should take us back to the first two books we ever had. We started with a picture book, and then we progressed to patterns, colouring in the patterns. And here we are, a book full of patterns and pictures. And we do need to let those pictures just dwell in our imagination until we see the bigger picture that is emerging. Well, this morning we're looking at another seven. We've seen a number of sevens already in the book of Revelation. In fact, There are 52 sevens in this book, one for every Sunday of the year, which is really quite quite fitting because the seven symbolizes completion. So we started with seven churches, and every one of those churches were exhorted to persevere. They had to be overcomers. It's the same pattern, very, very important aspect of the message of this book. And then seven seals over the scroll of history, and only one could be found to unroll that scroll. God's working in judgment, in salvation, and the Lamb is found, and he opens the seven seals. Then we had the seven trumpets of warning. Warnings that come throughout history. 
And now we have the seven bowls of wrath and the seven angels bringing those bowls. God's final judgments. And what I want to do this morning is just a glance over the whole passage and then fasten on to one or two important things for us to take away. First of all, we're going to go back to the beginning of chapter 15. And just to learn that God will finally be vindicated. The scene is after God's wrath is completed. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image, and over the number of its names. They held harps given them by God, and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. So this is the scene after God's wrath is completed. And John's heart is, and his, his mind is saturated with Scripture. And he takes us back to another great pattern, if you like, the Exodus pattern. The Exodus under Moses. The Exodus from Egypt, with its plagues, the Passover, the great rescue act, and then the song of Moses, which followed. Because the Exodus under Moses points forward to the Exodus through Jesus. It's wonderful, isn't it, that we have those accounts of the transfiguration of Jesus. And only Luke tells us what he talked about when he met with Moses and Elijah. They spoke of his exodus, literally, his decease. They spoke of his exodus, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Just think of that scene. Think of Moses talking about the exodus, realizing he was just pointing on to a greater exodus. This is the great theme of the ages. This is the pattern that is repeated again and again throughout the scriptures. Pointing to the greater exodus, his death and resurrection. And so here now, the song of Moses and the Lamb are set to the same tune. And you have the picture of all God's redeemed people standing victoriously, all singing from the same hymn sheet. It's a wonderful picture. And you say, well, why? why? Why is John given that vision of what happens after what's going to take place in these coming chapters? Well, possibly to see him through these chapters. They're full of rather grim details. But it does remind us 
that we've always got to keep our eyes on the end of the storage. Always. God will be vindicated. The Lamb wins. And it's interesting when you come to chapters 21 and 22 and you count the number of times Lamb is used. Yes, it's seven times in order that we may know that the work is completed and the glory goes to him. Just notice at the end of verse 4, before we leave chapter 15, the truth concerning the nations is double-edged. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. There are nations who disregard the warnings, who take no notice of the witness of God's people, and they will be judged. There are nations who see God's righteous acts and they worship. Now this triumphant note is going to slip from the scene for the coming chapters, only to come back with a glorious bang, as it were, in chapter 21. God's purpose for the nation, such an important theme throughout the Scriptures. So we see how the plagues, if you run your eye over the latter part of chapter 15... They are sent from the tabernacle in the wilderness and they're sent from the glory of God who fills the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory, that is the glory of his presence. And the first four of these bulls of wrath, these plagues, are exactly parallel with the first four trumpets, the warning signs. They come on land, sea, rivers, and sun. But there is a difference. The trumpet warnings are partial. Do you remember that fraction, a third, that kept cropping up in the text? Only a third were destroyed. But now, as far as the bulls is concerned, the judgment is total and final. But we must take some notice of the third angel and the third bull. God will vindicate his suffering people. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Why? For they have shed the blood of your people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. The rivers are turned to blood because the blood of God's people has been shed. And I think it's important that we link that to chapter 6, if you would look at verses 9 to 11. It's so important this whole question of the suffering of God's people 
is prominent throughout Revelation. When he, the Lamb, Revelation 6, verse 9, when he opened the seal, the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. The full number. God knows each one. That's wonderful, isn't it? You know, there are some 200 million Christians today suffering significant persecution. I remember in 1963, I was privileged to go with a party of Christians to what was then behind the Iron Curtain, communist countries. And I remember visiting one dear pastor and his wife, And they were under enormous pressure. Their mail was opened. They were all the time being called in, uh, uh, interrogated. Uh, There were spies in the church watching everything that was done and reporting back. They had a son, two sons. One was in a mental institution because of the pressure that had been brought upon the family The other was a qualified architect but couldn't get a job because he was a Christian. Enormous pressure. And one of the many questions that we asked him on that occasion was, what is your favorite book in the Bible? And immediately he said, Revelation, Revelation. And I can remember the feeling of surprise that I had. Revelation? I don't think I knew anything about Revelation. What about Romans and Galatians and John and Psalms and Isaiah? Revelation! And you know, now I'm surprised that I was surprised. And it may well be, as time goes on, we will find ourselves coming to love and need this book more and more. And only this morning from the Barnabas prayer aid, which was for Russia, and uh, I read, some leaders say that the position of Protestant Christians is more precarious now than in communist times. How we ought to be praying for our brothers and sisters. And this is a wonderful way to do it through the the Barnabas material. Try and follow that up. It's it's wonderful. So, God will vindicate his suffering people. And then a glorious truth emerges that God's wrath 
is based on justice. You see that in verse 5. You are just in these judgments. You see it in verse 7. True and just are your judgments. We've already got it in the song of Moses and the Lamb. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. That is what is being emphasized. Now, when you think of God's wrath, don't think pressure cooker. In the first year of our married life, uh, I did most of the cooking, and I always used the pressure cooker because I could do the uh, potatoes and the vegetables in seven minutes. And uh, there was that tremendous shh. I love that. It was the nearest thing you could get to driving a steam train. And sometimes we think of God's wrath like that. God letting off steam. God blowing his top. God out of control. God's wrath is his implacable opposition to all that is evil. Don't think in those terms. Just remember that fact. I think all of us have to wrestle at one time or another with the injustices that are apparent in the world in which we live, the tyrants, the bullies that seem to get away with it. And the good news is God's wrath is based upon his justice. I struggle with the concept of hell. I actually hope you do. I struggle with it at the intellectual level and I struggle with it at the imagination level because I have loved ones who are heading for hell. It is an awesome subject. And again and again I have got to come back to this bedrock truth Just and true are your ways, king of the nations. Or as Abraham at the beginning of the Bible, will not the God of all the earth do right? And sometimes we've just got to rest upon that truth. No one is treated unfairly. But that leads me on to the next point, which is people refuse to repent. Now that was said really three times in this passage that was read in verse 9 and in verse 11. They cursed the name of God and they refused to repent. They'd seen something of the warnings of history. They'd seen something of the witness of God's people. But like Pharaoh, they harden their heart. They refuse to repent. Not only that, three times, they cursed the God of heaven. They weren't atheists, not at that point. And they knew now that they were in the hands of God And they curse God. 
And I think C.S. Lewis is right when he says there will come a time in the experience of one and another where God has to say, thy will be done. Have your own wage. And then as we come to the sixth and the seventh bowl, I've said that the battle of Armageddon is evil's Waterloo. Let me just say something about Armageddon. The kings of the earth are gathered together in this vision of John for a great showdown battle. Verse 16. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The kings from the east, verse 12, and this concerns the sixth bowl of wrath. It was poured out on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. The Euphrates was a natural dividing barrier. And so the kings from the east would have great difficulty crossing that. But then it's dried up. This is the exodus in reverse. Not to let God's people out, but to let what were sometimes called these hordes, these barbaric barbaric hordes in from the east. But what about the kings from the west? Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. They're demonic spirits that perform signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. I've put a quote from Richard Borkman's helpful book on Revelation to this effect. The judgments of chapters 16 to 19 are primarily aimed at destroying the systems, political, economic, and religious, which oppose God and his righteousness, and which are symbolized by the beast, the false prophet, Babylon, and the kings of the earth. But those who support these systems, those who are caught up in them, evidently must perish with the evil systems. Political systems which are tyrannical, economic systems that are corrupt, religious systems that are idolatrous. And the sixth and the seventh ball are pointing us on to what is coming in chapters 17, 18, and 19. And I gladly pass the button back to Ben for chapter 17 next week. And all that happens to Babylon that symbolizes this world and its opposition to God. 
And so there is, the kings are gathered for the battle of, we should say, Har, H-A-R, Har-Mageddon, Mount Megiddo. There were many, many battles in the Old Testament on the plain of Megiddo. But this is the Mount Megiddo. Don't look for it on a map. I don't think that that is the point. This is the decisive battle. This is evil's Waterloo. You see, we use the battle of Waterloo in that sense, don't we? You'll find it in the dictionary. Napoleon met his Waterloo. And Armageddon has come down into our language a little bit like that. It is the final decisive showdown battle. Twice recently I've heard Robert Peston use it, which proves that it's bad uh, news. But he's speaking about the euro and the economic meltdown. And he says our economic Armageddon, things are beginning to look up a little bit now, but this was a, a couple of weeks ago. But there is no battle. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. And then there's lightning and there's thunder and there's the greatest earthquake that has ever been. And there are hail stones weighing a hundred pounds. What answer? There's no answer. It is total. The Lamb wins. And that, as I say, takes us into chapters 17 to 20. Now let's just pause and focus on two truths that we could well take away from this passage. The first is this, God's wrath is real. We've talked about pictures, and we've seen a number of pictures of God's wrath. And we might just dismiss it as pictures, but God's wrath is real. The wrath of God, that term comes 30 times plus in the New Testament, Jim Packer once said, be very cautious of anybody who begins a sentence, I like to think of God as. Usually it's some rather benign grandfather figure in the sky. I like to think of God as. It doesn't matter what you think of God or what I think of God, what opinions we have. The crucial thing is what God has revealed to us in his word and in his son. He's made us in his image. He doesn't want us to return the compliment. God's wrath is real. Richard Niebuhr, at the beginning of the the last century, Two American theologians, Richard and Reinhold. Reinhold was the more famous. 
But here is this damning description that he gives of liberal Christianity. That is Christianity that really ignores the more solemn aspects of God's word. He spoke of it like this. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without the cross. And there may be somebody who's saying, well, surely the wrath of God belongs to the Old Testament and now the emphasis is on the love of God. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly we must always be following through, as it were, the flow of Scripture and seeing the fulfillment in the New Testament. But will you turn with me just a few pages back to to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. I choose Hebrews because it was written to Jews who had become Christians. They'd seen in Jesus their Messiah. But they were struggling And they were under pressure. And they were thinking of turning back. And the book is written to encourage them to keep going. And to see in Jesus the fulfillment of all the institutions and so on. The types of the Old Testament. And in Hebrews 12 and verse 18. This is wonderfully brought out. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, uh, that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. In other words, you've not come to Mount Sinai. But, verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, which is plural, incidentally. The church of the firstborns. Everyone is receiving an inheritance. It's not merely saying the church of Jesus here, but the church of the firstborns. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground for vengeance. The blood of Jesus cried out from the cross for mercy. And everything about this description is speaking of intimacy and joy. And that's right. And yet notice how it ends. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The fire of Sinai is a thing of the past. The fire of God's holiness never goes out. What is different is there's a new and living way opened up into his holy presence.
And we have got to hold together truths. God's wrath, God's mercy, God's wrath, God's love. In our thinking, in our mental image of God, we hold them together. We don't reconcile them because they've never fallen out. But we hold them together in our thinking concerning God. That's why Jesus taught us, when you pray, say, Our Father. And we're to pour into that expression all the wonder of the New Testament intimacy. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's a wonderful thing to fall into the arms of your heavenly Father. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Chapter 10 of Hebrews. God's wrath is real, and it must be part of the image that we have of God as new covenant believers. And finally, God's warning is urgent. Back to chapter 16 and verse 15. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed, there are seven Beatitudes, incidentally. In Revelation, this is the third. They come thick and fast at the end. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Judith and I lived for a while, 14 years, near Oxford. And for a short part of that time, she worked for Colin Dexter in Oxford, uh, the author of the Morse series. And... uh, So we were delighted when they came on television and we used to watch them. We watched with a different kind of eye because Colin Dexter, the author, insisted on making certain cameo appearances. Not speaking, sitting in the corner of a pub, walking down the street in Oxford, and we'd say, oh, there he is, there he is. Now here, the author Remember how Revelation begins, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. The author makes a cameo appearance, and it's a speaking part. So we must be eager to hear what he says. I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. The problem is, who's he warning? The warnings are over now. Who is he warning? And I would suggest that we go back to the earlier part of Revelation and to the last time that Jesus spoke in this book. The seven letters and the letter to Laodicea. Chapter 3. This Laodicean church that was lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And Jesus describes them in verse 17. 
You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They were in the church, but they weren't really of the church. Jesus is outside of the church, knocking to get in. And it ties up, isn't it, with the parables that Jesus taught of his coming. All the time he is warning them, encouraging them to be faithful, be steadfast, be ready. Did you notice the irony of the ranger's situation? When the logo came up, the logo on the side of the stadium with the lion and the one word underneath, ready. But they weren't ready. That's the problem. And we must be ready. Chapter 18, we still have that exhortation when it turns to Babylon, come out of her, my people. So, in other words, this is an exhortation to God's people, but who are not, they identify with the church, but they're not really part of the church. And he's saying, you're spiritually naked and you need to be clothed. You know how clothing is spelt out again and again in the book of Revelation. Chapter 7, who are these arrayed in white? Whence did they come? They came out of the great tribulation and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And here is the glory of this truth. On the cross, Jesus took my sin and gave his righteousness. What an exchange that is. And again and again, that is called the robe of righteousness, the clothing of righteousness. We're not naked. We can appear before God, our judge. We can look up into the face of our judge and see our Savior. You say, well, what exactly happened at the cross? One of the things that the settlers in America, the early settlers, dreaded more than anything else was a prairie fire. And very often you could see it off in the distance and then you you usually checked which way is the wind blowing. Is it coming in this direction? And if it was, there was no escape with their caravans and their animals and so on. So what did they do? They used to burn out a large patch of ground from the undergrowth. And then they'd drive onto that patch the caravans and the animals, the cattle, the children. And when the prairie fire came, it had nothing to get hold of. And it passed them by. That might be a little crude, but for me, that is a wonderful image of what it means to be in Christ on the Day of Judgment. No condemnation, now I dread. 
Jesus and all in him are mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Divine wrath, divine righteousness. And so I must close with this exhortation to any of you who do not truly know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Think again. Turn to him. You can't hide behind this church or any other church in that day. Do you truly know him as your Savior? Let's pray.